Welcome to Activate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey everyone, you are tuned in to yet another episode of the Activate podcast brought to you by Remerge. I, today, am your host, Tommy. As you know, there are other days where Maria hosts or Johannes hosts, but today I have the wonderful pleasure of hosting the podcast. I'm super stoked too because the person I have online is someone I hold in great admiration. I've worked with this person, I don't know, just about a year. It's probably about as long as we've known each other too, maybe a little longer than that. But he's an expert and interesting fact, he has the same exact light shade or light fixture as me. And we came to the realization on one of our calls. So we both have awesome taste in what I'd consider maybe mid-century modern light fixtures. In any case, without further ado, today's guest is Pablo Bereski, who is the marketing operations manager for Edermax. Pablo, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, Tommy? That's a pretty good intro. And that's completely true. We have, I think, identical taste, I would say. We just kind of put them in different orders or something. Have you been? Yes, we do. The interesting thing about the light fixture is you had to modify yours because you are yeah. pretty tall. 6'6". Six, six. You are 6'6", six, six, and I am not that. I am just an average height, so I don't have to modify my light fixture. You're a regular human being. <laughs> not regular. I think uh, just not tall. I don't know if there's a real such thing as a regular human being. In any case, how's life? Where are you at right now? Well, right now in cloudy Argentina. It's winter over here. It's winter solstice. So it's a weird time right now. We're still in mid-pandemic. COVID is still kind of at large. Everything is going well, but yeah, they're in Argentina right now. Awesome. Winter in Argentina. It's not that terrible. It's not. I'm guessing it's it's pretty much I mean, still. not for what you guys, I mean, in the States you get minus whatever. It, over here, it's in Buenos Aires, we can get maybe a couple of days of, I think it's a couple of degrees under 32 for you guys. So it's never going to be terrible, at least not in Buenos Aires. We can get, it gets chilly. We're kind of super vertical in the in the entire South continent. So yeah, we have everything. We go from pretty much every single ecosystem. That's awesome. Well, that's the spice of life. It's variety. In any case, yeah, exactly. I know you've moved around a fair amount in your life, but how long have you been in Argentina? So this time around, it's been, I think I've been here for about three years, I want to say. I used to live in Maui before that, so it was about four years in Maui. I was traveling a lot stateside. I was working for an editorial financial firm over there. They were kind of global. And then I was coming, we were coming back to Argentina, me and my son and, and my wife at the time. And it's kind of a transition between shipping containers and everything coming back. And I ended up at Edermax, which was a great opportunity that was opening up. And yeah, I mean, I lived as a kid. I lived in Libya <laughs> as well. So near Tripoli, yeah, that was weird. It was Gaddafi times, bombings, weirdest time ever. I was four, so I've got insane images in my head of bombings and everything. It's just weird. But yeah, most recently, the last few years, it's been Argentina now. That's a lot. Yeah, sorry. Right there, just the Libya bit. 
it's tough because I, I have no way of empathizing with that. So I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But I'm happy that you and your family are, are in a good place now in Argentina. And you've got what sounds like an awesome life going on you know, living in Maui. And now, again, Argentina, a few other places in between. You brought up something interesting right there and telling us a little bit of backstory, which is that you worked for an editorial financial firm of some sort. And then obviously today you work at a game studio, a casual game studio, nonetheless, Get me from point A to point B. How did you start your career and how did you end up, not maybe not start, but more or less start your career and how did you end where you are today? So I was, in Argentina, we have these things. It's kind of majors. You can't really switch between majors as you would in the States if you're going for a college degree. So I started engineering. I got to the point, I think it was like a year in, I was looking at rotational fractures or some weird thing on, on different materials and I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do with my, the rest of my life, not testing and doing all these things. It was industrial engineering. And then I went back and started economics, which I kind of went through pretty quickly. After that, I moved around. I did a little bit of consulting in the beginning. I kind of enjoyed finance and math. So I started going down the line of financial research, which is a lot of, yeah, I would say economics kind of one of the key career points is focusing on that probably. So after that, I went into financial research and it was for this editorial financial conglomerate. I would say at that point, we already had already gone through a couple of M&A situations. So it was actually hiring a couple of other editorials. And I started out doing this financial research for distress situations specifically. So it was like sovereign bonds and distress situations. And then I kind of moved in from that into the content that we were producing because we had aggregated content and proprietary content. And off of that, once I started analyzing the content that we were producing, I was like, let's put focus on these countries or these tags, these specific regions, that sort of thing. So I really moved into the analytics space and specifically the content analytics space. And then kind of continued that diagonal upwards movement and went through content. From content, I went to analytics more specifically, and then I kept on moving towards anything that had to do with like data science and started projects around retargeting, churn prediction, things that we weren't currently doing at the company. And I thought they would add a lot of value. It was like a pretty high ticket for a subscription-based product. So it was kind of like each account was cherished, I would say. So losing one account was kind of a big deal. So we went through churn prediction. That got me into retargeting a bit. And then I had a conversation with our my current CMO, who's my boss, Nacho, who he heard that I was moving back from the States. He had a list of a lot of issues he wanted to tackle still with a marketing department and retargeting was one of them. And that's kind of where he saw that I had worked on churn prediction. He saw that I had a kind of a focus on analytics for the last few years and that I was handling, I was pretty on pretty intensive on the data side and I enjoyed doing those kind of weird deep dives into those complex problems. So we had retargeting as one of the issues. There was a lot of things that we continued to explore. We, we ended up opening a lot of different avenues within marketing. But this was the main thing that brought us in. And I, th- I want to say maybe like three months in, we started doing our own retargeting. And that's kind of like where you guys get sort of involved in the story. This was, this was like, to what? I want to say like beginning of 2020 or so. Interesting. I want to back up a little bit because 
I get that expertise can lead you into these different companies, right? That expertise could take you from a financial consulting firm into essentially a gaming or a gaming company. What I'm curious about, though, was you had no gaming experience prior. Did you have any fear or reservation about jumping into an industry that is on like a pretty opposite side of the spectrum when you compare it to something like a financial services organization? I mean, that's completely true. I think I was in an, I would say, special position or I was at the intersection of, thankfully, because of my friends, I want to say my two or three of my best friends are already, they, I mean, they were, one was a studio owner in Argentina. The other one used to work in one of the largest e-commerce companies in Argentina as well. And it's kind of with the same thing with your best friends, right? You're always discussing what each other is doing, what work looks like. And we were always talking about apps and, and mobile development. It was kind of the thing for the last, whatever, 10 years, 20, forever. But we used to discuss that all the time. And games is something that I kind of always had my eye on. And I didn't really know the space that much other than the competition that my friend would always mention, you know? And Edermax was one of those it's not direct competition, but it was one of the companies that used to, they were growing, they're st they still are, it's kind of a massive year on year. But at the time they were, they were hiring all the time. So it was funny that I was talking to my friends and, and since I was coming back to Argentina, it was one of those things like, yeah, we've heard of Edermax. I mean, they're hiring constantly and, it, and it's kind of in the same space that m my friends were running on. So it was kind of a, a given. And going into the gaming space, I understood pretty well what the situation was. Argentina has a massive talent pool, I would say. And namely on gaming, it might be, we've had a bunch of successful titles for sure. I mean, country-wise, right? And it's not like, uh, it's a, not for the, not for different companies or firms, but there's not that many massive studios near unicorn uh, companies. And Edermax was one of them. I understood the role as not that much of a, uh, I kind of, split the issue in my head into you know buckets just by doing a little bit of the consulting exercise i would say and in the end you're kind of looking at the same thing i was looking at retargeting or trim prediction at the previous editorial financial firm and i was essentially looking at the same thing we were looking at engagement and sort we were looking at monetization as well we were looking at and when i was coming to this it was almost kind of dissecting the same problem in a sense we had recency we had number of meetings we had number of emails and it's always the same thing when you're just looking at different variables. But in the end, it was a market and an industry that I was interested in. And the name, the company was really big in Argentina, still is, of course. I would also imagine that one of the core differences here is the scale of the retargeting operation that you have to execute at, Re at Edermax when you're dealing with millions upon millions of millions of users, whereas the financial services, I can imagine, was not at that same scale. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's kind of what, I mean, not that it was daunting per se, but it's it was a massive difference in the entire marketing ecosystem. That was kind of, I would say, is most likely the biggest difference. When I was working on it before, it was like we had our own databases, we had interactions stored in our own databases. So it was it was much easier and scale in that sense wasn't as massive. And when we actually had to do any kind of retargeting previously, it was much simpler. And right now doing retargeting, when you're looking at scale and mobile, it's completely different because you're looking at, we have, I mean, Edermax as, as a company has had several success titles. So it's been, 
I want to say, I mean, we've kind of been in the trivia ground forever and we've been good at it. We've been releasing titles a lot over the last year and previously as well. But specifically, we have kind of two battle horses, we would say in Spanish, which are Trivia Crack 1 and Trivia Crack 2. And we just launched, we've had one of the, I mean, we've launched, I want to say seven titles maybe last year, seven or eight. But one of those was like, I mean, it's still running. It's, it's performing super well. It has a great margin as well, which is uh, Trivia Crack Adventure. And those things kind of, I mean, changing that dynamic, I would say, was was kind of the biggest issue. I mean, scale here is is really the conversation. I, you brought it up perfectly because we kind of run, yeah, I want to say we we ran our own, at the beginning of 2020, we were running our own internal targeting system. So we were looking at pretty much all the variables you would always look at. So it was recently platform, uh, trend probability, monetization, and different aspects, weighted ads, interstitials, and all these other things. And we found pockets of profitability across the board. We were running these retargeting campaigns with one of the biggest, I don't know if I can name names here or not, but we were doing, is it something? No, it's fine. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> you can name them. We were running these retargeting campaigns via Facebook and we started running these, but it was, we kind of look at this from a mathematical standpoint, right? We're looking at the average revenue that we generate as a lift multiplied by the number of users that you're essentially hitting on your campaign group that multiplied by the total. I mean, this is kind of the formula you'd always use that multiplied by the average revenue. So in that case, you have that potential average lift that you're generating. And we saw that that against the cost of the campaign was kind of impossible. And we understood that this had to do with two variables here. One was essentially volume, which is where economies of scale actually comes into play. We have this thing, maybe this is kind of tangential, but Argentina is one of those places where I want to say economies of scale don't really work. So if you want to, in the States, you can go and buy a burger at any kind of McDonald's and it's going to be cheaper for you to buy the burger because they're bulk buying and all their, all the, uh, all the things they need to produce it. Argentina is the, the, I want to say not maybe the only place in the world, but it's one of those places where it's actually cheaper for you to go buy something else, buy the ingredients and make it yourself than what it will be to go at a restaurant. I mean, I, I'm not talking about a fancy restaurant. I'm just talking about bulk buying, McDonald's kind of a situation. So that being said, I'm thinking about this situation. We're looking at cost as, as a main objective. We had, we wanted to run this project kind of as lean as possible. We understood we have a massive UA spending on a weekly basis. We, at the time, weren't running, we had, we weren't launching new products. So we had this product as, as one of those things. We had UA campaigns for TC1 and TC2, which are, I mean, they were pretty high in spend. And we understood that we had a, a number of daily active users that we want to kind of keep in the circle, right? And by looking at the cost of us running, it was almost impossible. I want to say we found pockets of profitability, but it, it's most likely because we hit installs. And at that point, we were doing, we were really doing re-engagement. It wasn't as much as, you know, re-attribution or we weren't going for payers, which is one of the things that we kind of found through Remerge that was kind of the more profitable line. So that come kind of, it brings in the conversation, uh, I mean, into the conversation, the fact that scale and the CPC that you guys might be getting for those campaigns, for the campaigns that you're running in the open exchange is kind of the deal breaker. And for us, that was the reason why we stopped running it internally. We had the tools and we, and we actually, 
I mean, we continue to use them now. We're looking at revenue. We look at the data that we collect. We still go through recency. We, we look at all these dimensions. The thing is, having access to an open exchange in that way, because of the amount of, I would say, I'm assuming because of the, the amount of volume that you guys pick up in terms of impressions and everything, I mean, you're able to get at a, at a lower price point than what we're looking at with Facebook and do it in ourselves. So that's kind of where we went into the entire conversation with Remerge at the beginning. Yeah, and I, you're bringing up, you know, it, it's a really interesting point, right? Because Facebook is generally the first stop for most marketers. And it was for you guys whenever they're going to test out something new, which is totally cool. But I think for an app like TC1 or TC2 or even TCA, part of the reality here is like, yeah, you monetize users really well, but you're not a hardcore app and you're not an e-commerce property, for example. So the value that you derive from a single user it's decent for you. I mean, it works for y'all, but the economy is and pinching pennies becomes that much more important, right? Like a 10% more incremental cost on your media, if you run through Facebook, for example, might not end up backing out for you. So getting that cost down, like you said, it's, it's you said it's a combination of like Lyft times number of users times ARPU. And it's got to be also literally times cost at the end of the day as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. Yeah, I was, yeah, it was average. I mean, I want to say it's average lift net a cost, right? That's kind of what we were going for. But if you put it in an equation, you're just multiplying these three variables and then you're looking to see whether it can, how it compares, whether you're under or above the water and, and above the mark and against the cost. But yeah, that's definitely one of the key drivers. I mean, it, it makes sense pretty much for everybody. You have to derive this internal kind of ecosystem of tools as well. You need to be looking at all these variables. If you want to run this constantly, it means that you have to have a really kind of hands-on exercise with that. And that's kind of where we found the true value for Remerge when we were running these campaigns. It's kind of between the CPC that you guys were getting and, and the fact that we were pointing at, I want to say, the discovery of, of payers as a potential target. That was kind of the other thing that drove a lot of the decision behind us using a, a third-party vendor, right, essentially. Because when we were looking at the beginning, we were running these campaigns, as you well mentioned, we're, I want to say, 90, 90%, 95% ads revenue-based. So it's a massive, we have a massive DAO in that sense that a lot of that goes through impressions and it's not payers. But we've been going through the exercise of pushing payers as we're trying to get those payers that actually enjoy the game as much, you know, that they actually want to buy different things or, or parts of the game or, or, or just get into the economy. And going into those users was kind of, I mean, the combination of those users that have a much higher RPPU and the combination of the large DAO that we had made for us to, I mean, it was a pretty straightforward decision. We have a number of unique users that you guys can hit on the open exchange. And that was pretty immediate what we saw. We had to refine a little bit going down the road, but yeah, it was pretty immediate. There was no refining. It was perfect right from the start. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all good. It's super interesting, everything. And the conversation of payers, this is a super classic kind of strategy that we see game development studios take. Is I always make the argument, yeah, you're always going to run UA, but until you've maximized the value you can get from your core customers, it might not even be worthwhile to go other places, right? You got to make sure that your best users are really engaged with your product. You're not losing them. Or if you are turning them, you're winning them back, whatever the case may be. And it's something that, that you guys have done beautifully. 
that's definitely the case. And it was what we were looking at. We have that five to 10% of, of payers. We have a very low number of, I mean, in comparison, just because you have such a massive DAO, it's a low number of payers. But overall, it's a substantial portion of, of total revenue. And in the end, it's something that we want to push towards as well. It's something that we're not exploiting as much. We know that there's value there as well. It'll allow us to generate new titles and everything. So it's kind of, we want to go through that vertical and see what we find. And we've definitely found that with when running the campaigns with you guys pretty soon on, I would say. That's great. This is all super awesome. It does, there's kind of an interesting question that runs in this, in my opinion. And that's, you started, I think from what you had described, your team really started exploring retargeting in 2020, right? Edermax has been around longer than 2020. I don't actually know the number of years, but we'll call it five uh, or whatever, maybe more, maybe 10. More like a decade, I would say, but yeah, almost. Oh, okay, okay, a decade, holy shit. No, no, we had uh, really good titles in Spain. I mean, we launched, I think it was 2013, was the first title in Spain, which was massive. There was this whole situation where the, where the a congressman was caught playing Apalabrados, which is one of the games, in mid-session. So it was like everybody in Spain downloaded the app. We had a whole bunch of situations like that. Then we launched Trevor Crack and then it kind of exploded. So it was like, it's been pretty massive for a while. But yeah, sorry, you were saying. So we've been around for about 10 years. Yeah, yeah you've been around for some time. Obviously, you've been heavy spenders on the UA front, probably for the majority of that, si- that time. Obviously, your apps have an inherent kind of virality to them. And that's, I think, one of the, the beauty things about these kind of trivia apps is they have that built in if they're good and you have good products. But what is interesting is, yeah, I mean, last year you started retargeting. What do you think was, not that it's a, anything against y'all, I'm just curious, like, what do you think held... Why did it take us along? Yeah, what do you think held you back from getting into it earlier? Obviously, you may not have been there, but still curious. To be honest, I mean, I would say I might be... There's a bunch of assumptions here, right? Because I, I joined the company about two years ago. So I'm going to talk about outside of my space currently. I want to say that we launched TC2 about four years ago. I think it was 20 or before 2017, 2018. I wasn't in the company yet, but uh, I'm pretty sure that they were focused on the second iteration of the title. They weren't looking for efficiency in that sense. We at the beginning, I would say, I'm pretty sure that they were focused solely on product and retention through product instead of going through retention at the user acquisition or retargeting or any of those things. And they were really focused on on those core users, but at product level. So the product level is, I mean, at, at our company, it's it's a very test and iteration. And there's a lot, it's a pretty high level in, in the intensity. It, they're great teams, but they're really focused. So I'm pretty sure that during the course of those first years, they were focusing solely on product. And they, were, they weren't looking at retargeting as a as a space just as of yet. And yeah, at the beginning, UA was UA has been around for a while, but it, it's not been massive. And retargeting has always been one of those spaces where there's few very serious players and people that actually get to scale and firms that actually get to scale. There's a lot of people that essentially go out and sell the service, but there's few very serious ones, I would say, you guys and a few others. But yeah, that's I would be assuming a lot of things, I would say. Y'all started really in 2020. I guess it brings up one one more question. When you look at retargeting in retrospect, what was one thing that you found more, most challenging in getting it off the ground or maybe one thing you would have done differently as you look back? I think 
I mean, it's not a meme or anything, but it's one of those things that goes around in LinkedIn where you can see the amount of work that actually goes out into a data intensive project that says like, if you want to be a data scientist, it's like all this and you're looking at formulas and everything. And it's not true. 50% of the job is probably data cleansing and data cleaning and going through everything that you, you want to make sure that everything is neat and tidy before you start going into the campaign. I would say that was kind uh, yeah. I'm going to say that that might be the thing that we underestimated. Not with you guys. It's something that we did, but it's something that we underestimated. And, it, and it, I, I would say it still does get underestimated today. It's one of those things that integrations always take time. So it's a while for us to get everything on par. And revenue data that we're sending across, having pretty much everything. I mean, we're lucky that we have an MMP. So we have a lot of things that we're, that we're sending through them. We were going through validations of revenue and everything. I would say that that's most likely one of the pillars that you have to tackle at the beginning, for sure. The team at Edermax sounds like a bunch of perfectionists, honestly. You had mentioned before. I'm going to say it's a pain in the ass, but it's definitely, it's completely true. It's one of those things that, I mean, you get, it's a good environment. You get challenged, but it's a conversational challenge. So if you're presenting something, it's like, you sure you want to do it? I mean, make sure that when you get to the top, it's kind of, you're trying to present the information in the most succinct way, in the most compact and I would say like key driver way. And getting to that point means that you must, you must validate along the road a lot of times what you're presenting. You validate with data, BI. I mean, we go through data engineering as well. We, I mean, you had to go through all the circles just to make sure that we were in line. And then we essentially say, okay, we have this, it's up and running, it's going well, we're confident of it. And we go through the iterations. We're saying like, is this the best that we can do? I mean, and we have that a lot, the culture. I mean, it's a thing. I came into the company saying like, it might be one of those things that the company says that they have, but, and then it's kind of one of those phrasings. And then it ended up being that way. So it's pretty much, there's a lot of iteration. There's a lot of testing. And since we're kind of moving into new grounds as well, we're they're moving pretty heavy on the ad tech space. They're moving into different spaces all the time. And we're trying out new projects. We kind of uh, feel that we're pretty much vanguard in a lot of the things that we're doing. And we kind of, we have conversations with a lot of other studios as well. So we're happy with where we are, but we, we have this kind of constant evolution dynamic happening. I mean, it's interesting. It's one of the things that I was looking for, to be honest, when I was moving back to Argentina. So I was lucky to, hit the company in that sense. Yeah. And I mean, it's vital. The two pieces that you really touched on today were one, like product. And that's, I said, hey, why don't you start retargeting earlier? One of your arguments was, well, the team wanted to make sure the product was right. Like why spend money trying to keep consumers if the product isn't even ready to retain them or service them in the best way possible? So that's a step one. That's a sign of perfectionism in in the right way. And then the other one is like, you've mentioned with running retargeting, it's unfortunately often not as simple as giving someone some ads, some tracking links, and then looking at the results in your MMP, right? In your case, you're doing churn analysis. You're doing retention modeling. You're trying to figure out exactly what is the cost that you can afford to pay to engage past payer or an active payer, whatever the case may be. And all these systems have to feed into one another with third-party vendors, right? So it's not an easy thing, but when you get it right, the end result is that you have good campaigns, but more importantly, that you're confident in the actual campaigns themselves and you don't have to doubt whether or not it's real. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a good summary of what we were going through. 
I mean, it's kind of easy when you're in a closed loop and you have to do it, you have to do things internally. So you're tackling the problem on the data side internally and everything. It gets weird when you have to incorporate third parties. And that's kind of like at a show and tell. And you're like, so this is the data. This is what we're measuring. And this is what we have. Are you guys seeing the same thing on your end? You have to have that pretty good ebb and flow, I would say, to get around those issues. But yeah, that's definitely one of the points that we that we saw as a pain point and as a positive thing as well with you guys leaving what we built internally. We still use it and, and we continue to do a lot of tracking and seeing where there might be value. That's kind of the way that we optimize as well. And then the added bonus of, of having you guys as a vendor and kind of fulfilling what we're essentially paying for, right? That is a good product and access to a market that we currently wouldn't be able to get at the price that we're looking for to make it to make this grow, of course. I really appreciate the plug. And as you know, like we absolutely love working with your team. So I really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Well, hey, this has been really cool. I really appreciate all your insights. I'm so impressed by, you know, I've met so many members of the Edermax team at this point, and I'm always so impressed by the level of expertise, the meticulous approach they take to their work. You're really an awesome team. And it's been um, just such a pleasure working with you all. But Pablo, thank you so very much for joining me today on the Aptivate podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tommy. And and same thing goes for Remerge. We really appreciate you guys. We've been through quite a bit of, of retargeting campaigns now and and we've been running it for a while. So so we appreciate the patience on the back and forth and everything. So thank you. It's been great. You guys kick ass. For everyone listening, today's guest is Pablo Bresky, who's the marketing operations manager at Edermax. He's a really awesome dude. Thank you, Pablo. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.